let's turn to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 6 and from verse 30. It's a well-known story. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Um, what I want to do is I want to take this in uh, different sections and try and connect it with where we are at. You may be in this situation or you may know people who are in this situation, but let's say over on this side, there's somebody who says, well, I don't go to church, I'm not religious, I'm not a Christian, that's fine for people who are, people want to do that sort of thing, but I don't see what connection it has with real life. In other words, you can be religious if you want in the same way as you can be a Trekkie if you want or join a line dancing club or do knitting or whatever. It's kind of like a hobby, but it's, you don't really see it as having any connection. Come into the building here, look around, you see it's a church. Um, we sing, we read the Bible, and you think, what's that got to do with anything? On the other hand, if you go over to this side, there's the world as it is. Some people would say that religion is kind of fantasy, and maybe a lot of it is. But other people say, well, this is the kind of reality. And if you look at the reality of the world that we're in, maybe sometimes Christians get very, very upset uh, about this. What's the reality? Sunday Times Today has an article saying that compared with a couple of years ago, five times more 11 and 12-year-old girls are being prescribed the pill. And the Times editorial basically says, what can we do about it? That's the way things are. It's absolutely uh, horrendous in so many ways that they, the, the Times acknowledges, what are we doing when children are being sexually active, and not just sexually active, but promiscuous? I heard a, a story a couple of weeks ago of a child who was at school and was asked in the class to draw up a family tree. But his dad was on his fourth marriage. His mum was on her third marriage. And there were all kinds of other complications as well. And the school eventually just said, give up. There's no point. How can you? You can't. It was, we didn't, when we were away on holiday, we didn't get much news from Dundee. But the news I did get wasn't encouraging. Six young men uh, committing suicide that we know of. Just... The society that we're in is in such a mess in so many ways. And what can you do? Some people think, well, some religious people, some Christian people think, let's just get out of it. Let's disconnect. Let's try and survive. I think a lot of non-religious people have the kind of same attitude in the sense of they say, well, let's get what money we can. Let's get a nice house. Let's cut ourselves off from so many of the things that occur. But I want to suggest to you that what some people would consider to be irrelevant, the teaching of the Bible, prayer, worshiping Jesus, following Jesus, is directly connected with the mess that our society is in. And we don't have the option to withdraw from it, and we don't have the option to retire. And this story of Jesus 
shows us why that is the case. It's an important miracle. It's the only miracle that is told in every single gospel. And it talks about the power, as we've been singing, of God the creator, the God who is still in control of the universe he has made. Now, I realize again that for some people, even that statement presupposes uh, way too much, but bear with me to, so that you can see where we're going with this. And I want to look at, I think it's four things that come out of this story. First is very simply, rest. The disciples, the apostles gather around Jesus, they report to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now the story is, as as many of you will know, is that Jesus came, he called these men to follow him, they followed him, uh, he sent them out to do particular work, and it worked. It was phenomenal. Preaching, healing, casting out demons. And they are absolutely triumphant. They are thrilled. They have been commissioned. They have been sent out. And there is a real buzz about it. They are, they're not concerned about being apostles as such. There's a, that's a, a kind of status thing. But their function was as eyewitnesses. And they were telling people of what Jesus was doing. And they were seeing Jesus work through them. And they are really excited. They return and they gather around Jesus and they tell him all that they had done and taught. Sometimes those of us who are Christians, we know that we can go through periods in the church and go through periods in our own life which are pretty dry and they're not very exciting. And then there are times that come which are absolutely thrilling that we, we want to be able to tell everybody. There's a buzz about the place, and that was certainly the case was happening here. They gather around Jesus and report to him all that they had done and taught. Now, I think there's a basic principle here for those of us who are Christians and who are involved in Christian work, and that should be all of us who are Christians. It's a really good idea to tell Jesus what we've been doing. Sometimes we we want to go and tell other people, and sometimes that's good, but other times it's not. But it's always a good idea to go and tell Jesus. Doesn't he know? Yes, he does. So why do we need to tell him? Because we have a relationship with Christ, and it's good for us to seek his advice and to seek his counsel for what is to happen next. In Acts 6 verse 4, these same apostles said, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. If on this side is the world in a huge mess, and if on this, and, and that includes, by the way, the church, and if over here is our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's really, really hard to connect those two things, and sometimes we just want to give up. But what we need to do is we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I've been doing this in your name, and I've been teaching this. And I've been saying this. And the Lord says, okay, come aside. Come aside and uh, take time. These men are excited but exhausted. 
The crowds are coming and going. They don't even have time to eat. So Jesus tells them to get some rest and some refreshment. Perhaps to protect them from overexposure or too much excitement at their new power or to save them just from exhaustion. We're actually, uh, the book that's, there's, I think there's still three copies at the back, The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. Over the next four prayer meetings on Wednesdays at half past seven in the hall, I'm going to go through that book and look at some of the things because the principles in it are really, really important. Because one of the great reactions, or not great, but one of the normal reactions that so many of us as Christians have is this. We're exhausted. We're too busy. We're exhausted. We're discouraged. There's so much to be done. We don't know how to do it. And sometimes you can have an energy that comes from a kind of spiritual buzz. And you think that you could go on forever. You're super saint. But Jesus reminds them of their humanity. He reminds these men, fishermen, the tax collector Matthew and others. He reminds them, you need to stop. You need to come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They needed quiet and recreation, recreation, and more opportunities to learn. You can only go on a buzz for so long. And then what happens with a lot of people is they'll take drugs of various kinds. Um, Caffeine actually is a drug, and uh, I love caffeine, and I will take caffeine frequently, but I think when you're on your sixth espresso, it's probably not the right kind of buzz. I, I didn't know this. This is sheer ignorance. But uh, I discovered this a few months ago. That apparently what coffee does is, it is right, it does wake you up. So if, I was, if we were to give you all a cup of coffee before the service, that would be very helpful. Um, you have coffee. and then, But what happens is, you kind of go up like that. But then when you go down, you go way down from where you were. So if I have a coffee at, say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, I'll probably need another one at 3 just to get me back up again. And you just get into that cycle. Well, there are people who kind of act like that a little bit in terms of spiritual things, that we get on a buzz with certain things we do and other things we struggle with. But I think the Lord knows that... He created us, he knows he created us, and there's a rhythm in life. And we can't work unless we have our rest. And rest will not come, by the way, unless we work until we're tired. There's two dangers, two imbalances in this. On the one hand, we can be too active. Jesus knows that we can be so busy about our work and caring for the souls and needs of others that we neglect ourselves. And we don't necessarily do that for good reasons. We do that because we are driven people. Whatever the reason, it can sometimes be the case that we give God no opportunity to speak to us. We do not know how to be still. We do not know how to listen. But how can we do God's work unless we have God's strength? And how can we have God's strength without coming into his presence? Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. The Lord knows that we need rest and space. I was listening to a program on the radio. It wasn't talking about Christianity, but it was just talking about how 
in modern culture, we've become very, very frightened of silence, of quiet. And that someone was reflecting that even, that's even happened in the church. That if there's not some kind of noise at some point, then people are a little bit afraid. But it's what we are when there is nothing to distract us. It's what we are when we are quiet that really defines who we are. And I think a lot of people are scared of silence and they're scared of quiet because they don't want to reflect and they don't want to think and they want to be constantly distracted. So some of us, even as Christians, and <clears throat> I'm looking in a mirror, we overwork. But how can we do it properly unless we have our rest? On the other hand, there are Christians who are dead lazy. They, they're totally into the withdrawal thing. They, they withdraw all the way, uh, all the time. They want to contemplate and to pray, perhaps. But prayer that does not issue in work is not real prayer. We must never seek the fellowship of God in order to avoid the fellowship of men, but rather to prepare us for it. And it's, a, it's just a paradox that in any group of Christians, you will find people who overwork and you will find people who underwork. And the two don't compensate for one another. We need much more balanced lives. So that's what he calls them to. And you'd think it was great, the verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But the crowd follow. The lake, if you can imagine this scene, the lake is four miles wide. So Jesus and the disciples get on a boat and they go across to the other side. But it was 10 miles round by land. And the crowd followed there extremely quickly. They ran, it says in verse 33, on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the disciples are basically having a, a sail across uh, the, the lake. They're getting some food. They get to the other side for some rest. And the crowd has run all the way around. Now, that would be, can you imagine the kind of popularity you would feel about that? Imagine if you were going to go and, if we were a church worshiping, we said, well, let's go and um, tell you what, let's just go across to Tayport or something like that. And then uh, hundreds of people, thousands of people went across. You say, leave us alone. I mean, we, we, we never experienced that uh, in the, in the church here, but sometimes, sometimes, in the church in Scotland anyway, sometimes you can. I remember we went through a period, uh, I was minister up in Brora for a while, and we went through a period up in Brora where it just seemed, it never stopped. There were always people knocking on the door, wanting to ask about Jesus. And you can't really say if someone knocks on your door and says, I'd like to ask about Jesus, go away, come back tomorrow, I'm tired. Well, that was what was happening here. The crowd follow. It wasn't what was planned. It wasn't what was expected. We can have strategies. We can have plans. We can have events. They're all important. But they are possible rather than necessary developments. I love this quote. I put it up there. There is about Christianity at its strongest, a clear sense of not being able to control what happens around and to us. And for some of us, that is extremely frightening. 
because we like to be in control of our own lives, and we like to be in control of our circumstances, and we like to be in control of our ministry, and we love it when there's a book or when there's a teaching or when there's a a practice or when there's a pattern which enables us to, to have things ordered and structured. We like to be able to know what's going to happen. But God isn't like that because when God begins to work, it doesn't necessarily, perhaps doesn't even often, fit in with what we think should happen or will happen. And so you imagine these disciples, they're as high as kites, they've had a great time, they come back, they tell Jesus, Jesus says, look, you need to rest, they don't even have time to eat, get in the boat, cross the lake, People run all the way around the lake. The crowd there is waiting for them. What is Jesus going to do? How would he react? How would he respond? Verses 33 and 34. Compassion. Many who saw them leaving recognized, ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now personally... I would have expected Jesus, or at least anyone else, and certainly myself, to be annoyed. His privacy had been invaded, and the privacy of his disciples and what he'd wanted to do. There are boundaries. You see, and you don't cross those boundaries. I think it's a great idea if you're really enthusiastic for the word of God. But turn up at my door at 9 o'clock tonight and say, I'd love to continue that. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it works. Now, I'm not saying it won't go. And God really lays on, oh, I should, maybe I should never ever have said this, but if God, you know, if something's happening and you just can't, you know, then in a sense you've got to say fine, but from my point of view, I don't say, oh. Sometimes you find yourself that. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was trying to get a whole lot of stuff done and someone rang the bell and basically said, actually said, literally said, I want to talk to you about God. And I thought, oh, can, can we not do it another time? I've got a lot. You know, I then thought, you idiot, what are you doing? This is crazy. That's exactly why you're here. Jesus had compassion. Now, the word that's used here is an incredibly strong word. It means to be inwardly moved so that you have to do something about it. In Luke 10, verse 33, the story of the Good Samaritan, it says that when he saw the man who was beaten up lying on the ground, he, he had compassion. He took pity on him. It's a word that's only used in the Gospels of Jesus or those who resemble Jesus. He didn't just feel sympathy. He didn't just say, oh, it's really terrible that these these people are so harassed and stressed. He did something. He identified with them. Now, why was he so moved about this crowd? Because they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. They had teachers, but they did not teach them of God. If you went to a chapter like Ezekiel 34, you see the anger of God against religious teachers who teach, but teach to make money for themselves, or do not teach what God actually says. And people are really, really confused because of that. It's a quote there from Dante. I woke up in the middle of wood, and it was dark, and there was no clear way before me. The people are like sheep without a shepherd. And in our culture, the thing that is so depressing about British culture today, about culture in Scotland and England and elsewhere, is that people are lost. They don't know the way. They're like sheep without a shepherd who cannot find pasture, cannot find food. We need strength. We need sustenance. Without Christ, we do not get it. 
And a sheep without the shepherd is, of course, in that culture anyway, was prey for the wild animals. Lost, empty, and in danger. Jesus saw the crowds. They were chasing him for maybe different reasons, but he saw that they were lost. He saw that they were empty. He saw that they were in danger. That's the human condition, and he cared about it. Now, there are an awful lot of us as Christians, we can look at our society and we can feel anger because we don't like the way that it is. But do we feel compassion? The kind of compassion that sees people as lost, people as empty, people as in danger. Sometimes there are Christians who take the truths of, of God's sovereign electing love and turn it around to mean that God doesn't love anybody else. That's a gross distortion of the gospel and a slur on the character of God. The need of others is a primary motive for Christian service. So Jesus shows that and he begins with their first need and their first need was that they needed to be taught. He began teaching them many things. Now, Jesus is doing that. The disciples are not doing it. But then they come because it's getting late in the day. It's a remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. These are thousands of people. What is the disciples' motivation? Is it compassion? Are they concerned about the people? Or do they just want a break? Are they annoyed that their rest has been disturbed? Lord, you said come with you for a break and we've come with you and there's 5,000 people here, at least that, and it's getting really, really late. And although they don't say this, the underlying implication is we are really cheesed off with this. Make them go away. Maybe they were still hungry themselves. Maybe they want to eat their sandwiches and they just can't get the peace to do so. And maybe also the focus has now shifted from them and the adrenaline rush has stopped and they notice just how hungry they are, how late it is, how many people they are, and how far they are away from food. The crowds don't seem to notice. Jesus doesn't seem to care. And I don't, honestly don't think that the disciples were motivated by the same compassion as Christ was. So what happens? Verses 35 to 41, he feeds them. They ask that Jesus sends people away to a nearby town to buy bread. And that's a reasonable request. They better go to the villages to buy some food. They are shocked with his statement. He says, you feed them. It's going to cost at least thousands and thousands of pounds. What's Christ doing? He's saying, you can't just get rid of people. That's not God's way of doing things. All they can find is five small flat loaves and two dried fish. Then there's a real test of their faith. They have to get the people to sit down in groups. They set uh, verse 40. In groups of hundreds and fifties, they've got to go and organize all that. Neat rows, like a vegetable plot. The, the Greek here literally means symposium by symposium. Thousands of them. And then the food is divided. I think that's... Um, one of the ways that we can apply that is, again, taking these two pictures. Here is Christianity. Here is the church. Here is, in, in a society, and a culture which has largely rejected it, here is the culture with all the needs, that are, the overwhelming needs that are there. And we, we say, what can we do? What have we got? What do we have? I mean, what do you have? What do I have? 
How do we reach people? Yeah, I mean, we can... I nearly said something there I shouldn't have said. Um, we, we have great difficulty in, in organizing even the smallest assistance and help and aid. The needs are so overwhelming. It's like a mountain before us. And we, what do we have? We have so little. But what this story is teaching is you take that, you place it in the hands of Christ, and look what can be done. If we put ourselves into the hands of Jesus Christ, there is no telling what he can do with us and through us. Verse 41, then there's a blessing that Jesus gives. He, he takes, he breaks it, he divides it. Blesses God, and then the distribution. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. That's a kind of psalm of the same kind of thing. Now, I want to just back off just a second and, and deal with a question that one or two of you may have, at least one or two of you, and say, how do we know this happened? I mean, some people try and explain it away. Basically, that there was one wee boy came with his loaves and fishes, and everyone else was hiding their picnics just in case. You know, it's like you're really, really hungry, and, and you just think, I'm not going to take out any food, because if I take out my food, I'm going to have to share it. I'm going to wait until I can get somewhere quiet. And then a wee boy comes and he offers his food and shares it and everyone feels guilty and they're all persuaded then to take out their packed lunches and start sharing it. Nice theory. Rubbish. It's not what the Bible says. It's not what's taught here. It's an explanation that you would take if you accept that there are no miracles. If you believe that there is no mighty God, then him turning doing this is not really a problem. It's only a problem if you decide beforehand no such thing can happen. How do we know this happened? Verse 39, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. When you read this story, it's not written as myth. It's written as an eyewitness account, even to the extent of the detail that it was green grass. And incidentally, what that means is we know that it took place in April because that's the only time that the grass was green in this place. I think the great thing about this story is it teaches us the amazing power of Christ. That when we are discouraged and confused and aware of our weakness, we need to think of Christ. He can create food for his people out of nothing and supply the wants and needs of all who follow him. I don't know if the crowd knew that this was a miracle. It's an interesting point. Did they know? Certainly the disciples did. And they would have been amazed. Point though is just simply this. That... Christ is able to take the little that we have and multiply it. We have to offer it to him. Last thing is simply this. Verses 42 to 44, it says that they were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And there were even 12 baskets left over. Um, I kind of feel sorry for the disciples a bit because they had to do all the clearing up as well. For those of you who complain about tea and coffee rotor and having a clear up afterwards, guys, it's like 50, 100 people. It wasn't 5,000. And these poor guys have been exhausted all day. It's the end of the day. They go to Jesus. Jesus says, feed them. They said, what? He works a miracle. The people are fed. Clear it up. It's all cleared up. Now, why did they do that? Possibly for the next day's meal? I think the main reason, though, is this. A normal Orthodox Jew would carry a, bar a basket. Why did they carry a basket? 
so that they knew that the food they had would be ceremonially clean. Each disciple would have a basket. They gathered this food into their own basket. What I like about this story in a way, and maybe a little bit of a different angle on it, is that the disciples have to pick up the remainder that is left from God blessing others. Would we be happy if God uses us to bless others and leaves us to pick up the remainder? Or are we really saying all the time, Lord, provide for us first? I think this story is also a reminder of who God is. Like the manna in the wilderness or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it's telling us Jesus is the bread of life. He gave his life for us and he gives us bread and he invites us to his table as we had communion this morning and he invites us to the great wedding banquet in heaven. Now, Please don't get this wrong. This is not teaching that God always provides in such unusual and spectacular ways. There's a book called The Men of Sutherland. Sutherland is in the north of Scotland. It's called the Southland because the Vikings invaded from Orkney, just in case you're interested. But um, there's a book called The Men of Sutherland and it describes an, uh, an old elder in Rogert in the middle of Sutherland who was rather hungry one day and hadn't eaten for some time. And he went to the end of his croft at which there was a stream, I think the river Rogert actually, and he prayed, Lord, provide for me. And a salmon jumped up and landed in his lap. At least that's what he told the court. No, but that's a story that's written there. Now, whether you believe that or not, maybe maybe that is what happened. I don't know. But God doesn't normally provide in that way. Life is not entirely made up of one miracle after another, after another, after another. And it's not entirely made up of spiritual thrills. The disciples didn't seem to have learned from this. Jesus repeated the lesson later. There was another feeding of 4,000. It was not because the disciples, I think, were particularly stupid or unresponsive. They were just like us. God provides for his people. It's not only a partial provision. Actually, that's wrong. It is only a partial provision. Because it was a provision that was for the day. He didn't give them lots and lots of food so that they could then go and sell it and have enough to get by for the next year. They needed daily bread as we also need daily grace. Let me say this to you if you are a Christian. That God is not going to give you a super experience from which you will live off for the next year or so. Every day you come into God's presence And God will feed you and Jesus will give you the bread of life. But he does so. And I finish with this. Christ taught the people and he physically fed them. He reacted to their need. I think that is a model precisely for our culture. It's a model precisely for our our nation and the people around us. We need to teach people God's word even though they don't want to hear it. And we need to respond to people's physical needs as well. Love, not ideology, should determine all our actions. The simple test is this, or the simple command is this. We are to respond to people in the way that Christ would, seeking to meet all their needs. So sometimes it will be that you are tired and you are weary and you are fed up. And somebody comes for help. 
And you don't turn them away because you are tired and you are weary and you are fed up. Yes, you need rest. But sometimes God will send you people to help and the very essence of that help will be that it's out with your comfort zone. Sometimes people can manipulate you in that way. I remember one time a guy came to the manse in Broda and uh, he was a particularly nasty guy who um, carried a knife and so on. I was actually up in my bed and my good lady was being much more spiritual. She was downstairs and she answered the door and it was after midnight and this gentleman was a notorious character and uh, Annabel quite wisely said to him to go away and you know what he said? He said, would Jesus turn people away? People can really be manipulative. Uh, yes, if they're carrying a knife and they're being, something, that's, that's possible. I think many times Jesus would. I'm not talking about being manipulated in that way. But I'm saying don't take that extreme, if you like, as an excuse for turning away from helping people who are out with our comfort zone. Christ feeds us so that we are satisfied, not so that we can be self-satisfied, not so that we can be full, not so that we can cut ourselves off from this suffering world, but so that we can live in this suffering world so that we can be part of the pain and part of the sorrow and part of the agony. Our society needs more than anything else Christians who are prepared to be satisfied with Jesus and to seek to tell other people about Jesus. May God grant that those of us who are believers that would be the case. And if you're not yet a Christian, let me just say this to you. You can drink all you want from all the wells that this world will give you, but you will never be satisfied until you drink from the well that never runs dry, until you come to the one who says that he who drinks this will never again ask, will never be thirsty. Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word. Help us to apply it to ourselves in every circumstance. In your name we ask it. Amen.